Welcome to the Smarter Healthcare Podcast, where we meet the brightest minds transforming healthcare, with your host, Kathy Susich. Welcome to episode 19 of the Smarter Healthcare Podcast. Our guest today is Alastair Erskine, Chief Digital Health Officer at Mass General Brigham, a 14 hospital system in the Boston area. Alastair is helping the hospital system to adopt new innovative technologies to improve the patient experience and clinical care. In this episode, we talk about how Mass General Brigham adopted new technologies to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic and what the health system's priorities are in the next several years. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Alistair, welcome to our podcast today. Could you start by telling us a bit about yourself and your role at Mass General Brigham? Sure. Uh, so um, I'm the Chief Digital Health Officer at Mass General Brigham. Uh, I'm an internist and a pediatrician uh, physician uh, as well. And I'm responsible for uh, all things digital health uh, across the organization, which include things like the electronic health record, uh, what, do we, what we do in terms of a digital front door for patients, uh, the patient portal, uh, our virtual care um, uh, services and capabilities, that kind of thing. Great. Now, the past year and a half was certainly disruptive for all of us, both personally and professionally. How did it change your technology priorities at Mass General Brigham? So it, it certainly was an incredible, unprecedented time. And um, we had the opportunity to learn a lot from the things that were necessary to be done you know, almost immediately. So uh, I think uh, uh, the good news is we were on a chassis of a healthcare operating system we use an electronic health uh, record system, uh, which, which worked really to our advantage because when we needed to make changes um, that were almost immediate, we were able to promote those changes across the entire organization very quickly. The kinds of changes that were necessary initially were uh, embedded into the system, uh, different testing and diagnostic capabilities, um, and also extracting from the system the capacity uh, of ICUs and uh, of wards to be able to manage and take care of uh, patients that were becoming sick at a time when we really didn't know a lot about COVID. And um, of course, the, the, the immediate challenge was with social distancing requirements that we needed to virtualize a lot of things, including ambulatory or, or outpatient visits. So we, we uh, went from approximately 75 uh, virtual visits a day to 12,500 virtual visits a day. So fairly important increase. We had to actually swap out our video vendor just to be able to handle uh, the, the volume of, 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 uh, of video calls that were coming through. And on the inpatient side, because there was, if you remember, such a, uh, a reduced availability of personal protective equipment, we had to find creative ways to still check on the patient without necessarily having to put on uh, the masks and the gown to uh, enter their room every single time. And so we actually invested in a lot of iPad devices and built software to, to have an always on virtual presence in the room so that the nurse, he or she could check on the patient on a regular basis without the patient having to do anything. And so that consulting physicians, even if they were you know, at a different part of the hospital, or in fact, you know, at home or at, in a different hospital, they could still log in and see and take care of that patient virtually. So that virtualization became really important um, uh, as, as, a, as an aspect of care. I think that's probably the thing that changed the most is 
not only the, the, the technology associated with video visits and iPad and software you had to build on the fly, the process in terms of getting people digitally upskilled to use that technology and, and including the patients that need to get digitally upskilled to be able to conduct these visits at home that may not have been used to it. And what do you think those important technology lessons are that we learned from the pandemic? One of the most uh, clear things we learned is the fact that we're going to have to be a lot more nimble as a healthcare system to accommodate whatever comes at us, including the pandemic or any future threats that uh, come to uh, you know our overall health as a system. I think the other piece that became uh, important to, to consider is a public health infrastructure that is designed to support uh, you know our state and, and across the different states in the U.S. Um, really has been dramatically underinvested in, in such a way that when it came time to rely on it, for example, understanding what the immunization registry uh, you know, information was. So every time a patient came in was get vaccinated, we want to double check before we invited them, did they already get vaccinated somewhere else? The volume that we needed to be able to check on patients every single day was not something that the immunization registry could handle as they got a barrage of requests from, as you can imagine, healthcare systems and hospitals and clinics all around the state. Uh, so it, 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 make, it kind of gave us pause and made us realize that that's going to be something to consider in the future in terms of how do we uh, sustain and set up and prepare for another threat that comes along with a good public health infrastructure to be able to support that demand. And I think the other piece that was important is even though we have 7 million patients in our database and we had uh, approximately 5 million patients that we, we, it was important for us to reach out to to invite to become, for example, vaccinated, some of the data that we had was not accurate about our patients. Uh, so it became very clear that we need to have a, a better ongoing process to monitor you know, phone numbers, addresses, email addresses, and so forth on an ongoing basis to make sure that we can always reach patients when we need to, not just when they're trying to reach us, but when we're trying to reach them. And then the final thing that is really important to bring up is um, what we didn't want to do is exacerbate the digital divide that exists um, when, especially in COVID prevalent areas, um, there were patients that weren't endowed with a smartphone or uh, technology or connectivity, yet we still wanted to reach out to that population. And so we had to engineer all kinds of new ways to reach out to a population that is harder to reach with traditional technology means, a patient portal, a smartphone, a text, and come up with new ways. Um, and in fact, we end up using things like conversational AI bots that would uh, call the patient and then interact with voice with a patient to be able to book an appointment uh, as an example. But these were things we weren't doing before, not as mindful as we are now about making sure that when we offer a technology solution to one, set of the population, we certainly consider uh, alternative means to be able to reach all patients based on whether it's you know, language difficulties, technology connectivity difficulties, any race or ethnicity uh, differences, so that we wanna make sure we account for everyone when we're trying to reach out to them. As you said, you had to do a lot that you hadn't done before. Uh, do you think after the pandemic is over, it will be as easy to innovate in healthcare? So I, I think it will be, yes, I think it will be as easy. Maybe the other part of the question is, will it be easier um, in the sense that we had to act very, very quickly 
uh, and change processes on the fly, sometimes multiple times per day. I mean, it, the thing that information was flowing through in such a manner that sometimes, you know, across the system that the, what would come out of the CDC or what would come out of, of, of state requirements and mandates would, would change uh, uh, frequently. And so um, I think that puts an organization, especially of the size of Master of Brigham on its toes in terms of how do you respond that quickly? What was, what was um, a silver lining uh, of the pandemic is because we were an incident command uh, structure. And in fact, we were an incident command for over a year. Uh, so we had the, you know, we, uh, Paul Bittinger and, and, and Ron Walls and, and Peter Markell led uh, the process of, of putting us into an incident command to be able to respond quickly to the needs. Our decision-making ability was dramatically accelerated because there wasn't time to pull a whole committee together and get agreement on every different component we need to be done. It was much more of a fast decision-making uh, process. That actually ends up helping when it comes to what to innovate on, because you don't have to go to a, a number of people to sort that out and figure it out. You can go to a smaller set of, of executive leaders to understand what's the most important thing to innovate. That ends up being a really important part of innovation is innovating on the right thing, the right problem to solve. Um, innovation that's that's unmoored or uh, or not um, couched in the problem that is in front of you uh, tends to be more uh, investigatory, opportunistic, as opposed to innovation that's actually um, anchored into something that is a problem that's right in front of you. Um, the other piece is um, we learned and, and come, came to appreciate the importance of iteration across that innovation spectrum in terms of, you know, we didn't wait for anything to be perfect. We had to put things out there as they came and then iterate and make it better as we learn more, as the information was slowly flowing through. And so I think having that skill and that capability across the team that uh, deals with technology and that uh, can has come to expect that things need to occur faster and more iteratively, as opposed to what's referred to as a waterfall way of being able to pull a project and, 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 and pull something together. I think we got more comfortable with learning as we went along and making course adjustments than we had before. I mean, of course, there were, you know, Master of Brigham is chock full of clever, innovative, uh, uh, brilliant minds, um, but being able to tug all those in the right and similar direction so that they actually were able to scale very quickly. I think that muscle that we built um, around uh, how to innovate as we needed to will perpetuate into the future. Now, a lot of times when we start to talk about innovation in healthcare, uh, there are some larger tech companies that are starting to get into this, like Google and Apple. What do you think of them trying to enter the healthcare market? So I think um, it, is, it is critical that they do enter the healthcare market. And the reason I say that is because I don't think that if we're really going to transform healthcare, we're going to do it on our own as a healthcare system. Uh, first of all, there are an enormous number of players across the entire supply, you know, value chain. Uh, but um, uh, large tech companies bring very uh, important expertise and capabilities to uh, to a healthcare system. We're not a software development shop, you know. We we certainly uh, do develop some software, but we, you know, we're really in the business of improving the health of a patient and being the academic medical center of the future that puts patient at the center of everything it does. We need partners in technology that all they do is engineer and software development and, and build in technology devices. So I think um, that partnership becomes really important. Now, will we always be in a position 
where it's not a competition and a collaboration? Well, most likely. And I think of uh, organizations like Amazon with Amazon Care and its desire to take on some of the virtual primary care business. Same thing with CVS Health. CVS Health is also with health hubs around, you know, even around Boston, is 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 trying to provide a, a, a trying to offer a service uh, to their customers that uh, that overlap in some of the services that we develop. So, I also see that not only can large technology companies bring their expertise in technology, machine learning, and software development, but they can also bring their uh, market uh, impact in terms of consumerism and set in expectations for consumers, which ultimately are patients, and, and make sure that we then respond with the right approach in terms of the products and the services that we offer as Mass General Brigham uh, to make sure that they're convenient and they're close and they're inexpensive for patients. So I think it will push us. So we need partners. Uh, we need some competition to push us to do better. Uh, and, and I think we do that with these large tech companies. Now let's look a little bit to the future as you look forward to say the next year or so, where will Mass General Brigham be focusing its tech resources? You know, we've made some great investment in, in, in the electronic health record. Uh, I think again, like I was saying before, that really serves as a kind of healthcare operating system. The, the next place we're going is we've, uh, we've made some uh, important investments and, and in partnership with Microsoft relative to the Azure uh, cloud sets of services. So a data ecosystem that is being built to be able to take advantage of all this data that people are dutifully entering on their keyboards every single day, both patients and uh, providers and everybody else that helps manage a patient through a healthcare episode. All that data, that rich tech, the exhaust of all this digital activity um, has a huge amount of value and can be reorganized in a different way for analytical purposes that then can provide insight both operationally at the point of care in terms of dashboards and situational awareness, but also in terms of insight, even in the form of, of, of big data streams, whether it's a physiologic monitor that is uh, uh, informing what's going on with the patient's blood pressure, whether it's um, information that comes from their home in terms of devices and sensors, all creating a digital twin of that patient that we can then run a various number of uh, AI and machine learning algorithms on without uh, without affecting the patient directly, but giving us insight into what could be the next best treatment for that patient. Um, so I think we, we, we're clearly interested in, in organizing our data in a way that we can use it operationally and for advancing uh, the insights for patient. I think the other uh, really important area that we are also uh, investing in is um, our consumer relationship management approach. So we have, of course, the electronic health record holds information about the patient, knowing what's going on with their uh, with a clinical case, and, and and in some cases on the back end, in terms of what, you know how to bill to the various different insurance companies and so forth. But but we don't necessarily use that system to uh, collect all the information about the patient that we need to know in terms of their preference, in terms of how they want to be communicated with. Is it email? Is it through the portal? Is it through a, a snail mail? Is it through a, a text? And we don't usually, usually uh, keep uh, information on what their experience was over the past, for example, 12 months to know where are we not doing a good job in terms of the patient's convenience and the patient's experience. And how do we, in, where do we surface that information in our system? So when you call Master General Brigham, we want to make it so that we already know who you are right when we pick up the phone. So you don't have to explain 
your name. We don't have to explain which doctor you normally see, which clinic you normally go to. That information is at our fingertips somewhere in the system. We want to surface it to the right agent that's answering the phone. And similarly, uh, when, when taking care of you as you're navigating seamlessly across the entire system, independent of which part of the system you're navigating, that experience should be the same. And you should, uh, and we want to store how you prefer to navigate through that, uh, through that system so that you don't end up being the human interface across disparate uh, processes and technology, but instead we have a, a mechanism to track that. So that's a lot of what consumer relationship management tools do, very well utilized in other industries, not so much in healthcare, but I think that we are making a, a, a bet that that is actually an important missing transactional system in the healthcare platform ecosystem. And we want to um, uh, learn by trying to implement and then seeing um, how much value that actually adds to the patient's experience. You briefly mentioned AI and machine learning before. Where do you think that market is headed in the next several years? So in the next several years, I think there'll be a lot of excitement about AI and machine learning and deep machine learning. Um, and I think that there, there definitely is, um, uh, it's important to continue to, uh, to, to learn about uh, AI and machine learning. And I think the challenge is going to be, you know, a, a lot of things that were previously uh, um, referred to as, uh, as sort of more traditional data analytics is now referred to as everything's AI. You know, it's almost like somebody found the software box and has put new and improved AI on it. And I think the challenge is there are brand new problems that we're going to have to wrestle with. So number one is that AI is dependent upon the data that feeds it. And that data in some cases can be very biased. Um, either in the way that it's uh, inputted or even in the way that the population is organized within one area of the market. You move AI from Boston to Los Angeles, you may not get those algorithms working as well because of the biases inherent in our population that's here. The other piece is that um, the AI um, can be interpretable or it can be non-interpretable. And so when it's interpretable, I can tell th the reason why something actually um, you know, is suggested by the, by the model. When it's not interpretable and it's using eigenspheres and mathematical models and vectorization to be able to figure out what the ultimate answer is, it becomes more difficult to kind of go back and try to figure out why did the AI suggest, you know, uh, option one versus option two. So I think that's another piece about it. And then the third thing is just because the model is working today doesn't mean the model is going to work well tomorrow. It may need to be retrained. It's going to have to learn. It's going to have to, we're going to constantly go back through our governance model and figure out how to support it, how to remove it when it's time to remove it. Um, and so that whole life cycle of AI from concept to, to, to building the model in the first place, to then implementing that model and then retraining and governing that model, I think will be things that we're wrestling with. And we're not alone wrestling with that. Um, I think the industry is wrestling with that. And the FDA is also trying to understand, you know, what role should it play in terms of either uh, you know, policing or managing or trying to regulate what occurs with AI is, is you know, what has traditionally been called a decision support in terms of alerting somebody of a drug-drug interaction. How much does that then convert over to AI and is considered a completely different family of, of, of not clinical decision support, but clinical data science? And so I think the, it, it's a spectrum. It's not a, 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 you know, a black and white type of scenario. And so I think we'll have to also try to understand how to accommodate um, this new advent of AI as it applies 
in, in clinical care. And the other piece is clinical care is not a place where you can just sort of casually um, experiment. You know, these are life and death kind of situations. So we also want to make sure that the, you know, first do no harm. That's, a, that's kind of the model that we live by, you know, as clinicians. We have to make sure that that's the case. And there are clever ways we can, we can ensure that, that it's not doing anything untowards, but just having to stay on top of it, making sure we can maintain it making sure that we have it documented so the person that invents it and, and goes off to another organization, uh, that we know how to continue to maintain it. Those are the kinds of things that we have to worry about. Now, if we look a little bit further ahead, are there any tech advancements that might be in the early stages right now that you think hold a lot of promise long-term? Clearly, there is a, an important aspect of, of moving from a, you know, a, a fee-for-service model to a value-based care model. Um, and, and that requires uh, redirecting the way that we look at, at patients in general. So in a fee-for-service world, for example, you know, there, it's a lot about um, volume and episodes of, of, of care. In other words, somebody comes in, they, they have a transaction with the healthcare system, and, and that's how we uh, kind of repeat that process, almost like a vertically uh, view of the world. When we move over to more on the value-based care side of the world, it, it reorients things more horizontally, where we're taking care of populations of patients, we're identifying cohorts of patients that need more additional types of care. So there's going to be a lot of investment. Uh, Mass General Brigham is committed uh, to uh, reducing a total medical expense in terms of you know, how efficient we are in taking care of patients and populations of patients. And so that invites the idea of remote patient monitoring uh, for patients that, that, that are willing to consider that. It could be a, a, um, a scale for a patient that has heart failure or a glucometer for a patient that has diabetes or a blood pressure cuff that's connected to a cellular network for a patient with hypertension. That data will come in and then along with what's available in the clinical record and ultimately will be available in the CRM in the clinical, in, sorry, in the, in the uh, consumer relationship management tool, pull that together to be able to figure out what's the next best thing to do for that patient. Uh, and then when are they scheduled to come in and how can we kind of bundle things together to make it more convenient? How can we get care out of the hospital, out of the clinic, into the home when it's, when it's appropriate? Even concepts like acute care, like home hospital type of environments where the patient needs to be admitted, comes to the emergency department, instead of being admitted to the hospital, gets admitted to home with all the services they need to be able to do home hospital care. We actually do that today. We look to increase the amount of home-based care and technology to support home-based care for patients that are acutely ill or for patients that just need chronic uh, um, you know, management. Uh, so I think that's one important area and future direction uh, that we're going. I think another one that we should consider, especially after pulling together a data ecosystem is we sit on a trove of data that um, can inform what to do with a patient when there is no evidence or when the expertise is not there about our, our patients. So not every patient comes in having read the textbook of medicine and presents in that way. And not every patient do we have randomized controlled trials that help us understand what's the next best thing to do. And in those situations, we're, we, you know, we need to get better at figuring out a way to, um, to tap into that data with the right privacy parameters in place and the right security parameters in place and the right set of people with the right training to be able to access that and get that information to clinicians at the front line to be able to tackle what to do, what's the best thing to do for the patient that's right in front of them. And I'll tell you, there's one other piece that hasn't really kind of come to fruition yet, which is, you know, there, there's a new kind of caregiver 
that is making themselves, you know, uh, more obvious as time goes on. Who is the doctor that you consult for? Does this AI or machine learning tool apply to my patient? What is the data that's in the system that is going to help me manage this patient? What is the right digital health tool that I could send this patient home with, just like a prescription for a drug as a prescription for a digital health, you know, setup for them? That that clinician at the bedside doesn't exist yet, but you can imagine just like you consult an ID doctor or a cardiologist, um, you may want to also consult a digital health doctor um, that is able to come at the bedside and provide that kind of insight and support the same way that would consult for anything else. So I think those are other directions that we're going to explore because all this technology has a potential to just fragment the clinical workflow and fragment the patient experience. We need people that are going to be able to tie this together, stitch the different technologies, and try to defragment this with the right set of platforms and also provide consultation, even at the bedside, for these kinds of uh, emerging technologies. That all sounds really interesting. Thank you, Alistair. This is a great conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Smarter Healthcare Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Alistair, you can follow him on Twitter at Transformatics. You can follow me on Twitter at KSusich or at SmartHC Podcast. Feel free to get in touch with comments or guest suggestions. To listen to more episodes, visit our website at www.smarthcpodcast.com or find us on your favorite podcast app. I'd appreciate if you would subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks for listening.